You are the man who gave them the power to destroy themselves. And the world is not prepared. Yes, indeed. That from the trailer for the blockbuster Oppenheimer. And thanks to Christopher Nolan's blockbuster, Julius Robert Oppenheimer. I think it's much more of a household name now than maybe he's ever been more than 50 years after he died. But his contribution to science, his contribution to the war effort, his contribution to atomic and nuclear weapons uh, is hugely significant. And maybe it's somebody we ought to know more about even if it takes a Hollywood blockbuster movie to help us get to this point. He was a fascinating and complex man, and as noted, uh, of some historical significance. Now, I've not yet seen the movie, but very much uh, looking forward to seeing it. But as we saw over the uh, opening weekend, uh, many people did. That's a whole cultural phenomenon involving the Barbie movie, which is a whole other conversation. Uh, but I want to talk more about why Robert, Heimer, Robert Oppenheimer mattered so much and how he came to be at the center of this historical moment. Uh, well, someone who's uh, written a book about Robert Oppenheimer is uh, on the line with us here this afternoon. Charles Thorpe is uh, an associate professor of the Department of Sociology at UC San Diego. His book is called Oppenheimer, The Tragic Intellect. Professor Thorpe, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, this has been a fascination of yours for quite some time. What, what do you make of the current fascination now that uh, the rest of us are, are collectively engaged in? I think it's a really positive thing that there's so much public attention to Oppenheimer now. I'm quite surprised that he's come into um, the public light today in this way, you know, but um, that's because of Nolan's film. But I think, you know, he he's still a very relevant figure, especially um, today with um, concerns about nuclear weapons, particularly in relation to the war in Ukraine. I think that um, Oppenheimer and his public arguments for arms control and his attempt to educate the public about the dangers of nuclear weapons are very relevant for us today. Why did it take so long, I guess, maybe for that re-examination of his significance? How, how much of that was due to some of the controversy that plagued him later in his, his life? Was he kind of uh, forgotten for a while, maybe because of some of that? Absolutely. I mean, Oppenheimer was a very controversial figure in his lifetime. And really, there's a split between liberals and conservatives in America in how he's viewed. Um, I don't know to what extent conservatives today, Republicans, really remember Oppenheimer. Um, but I, I think really into the 1980s, at least, you know, Oppenheimer was, was, was thought of on the right as a communist and a, and a, and a traitor and um, someone really to be condemned. But to liberals in America... He um, was quite a heroic figure who um, really tragically was removed from government service and persecuted. Um, and that was in the 1954 mm -hmm. Atomic Energy Commission loyalty security hearing, which really dredged up all sorts of aspects of his personal, political professional life in order to condemn him as a communist sympathizer and to say that he was disloyal to America and could not be trusted. Um, and, you know, that was based on his um, involvement before World War II with the Communist Party. Um, and it's still, you know, somewhat murky, I think, um, what exactly the nature of that involvement was. But, you know, Oppenheimer was left-leaning. He very much supported Roosevelt and the New Deal. He was very sympathetic to the Spanish um, Republic and 
in opposition to fascism, both in Spain and in Nazi Germany, where he still had relatives concerned about the um, Nazis' persecution of, of the Jews. And um, was on to left-wing circles in Berkeley, um, in and around the Communist Party, although he was never a member. And that was something that was fairly typical for um, liberal intellectuals in the 1930s. But in the later context of the 1950s with McCarthyism, um, uh, it was treated very differently. It was. And, you know, it, it, it's interesting that it wasn't an obstacle to, you know, him being recruited into the Manhattan Project or him taking over the Manhattan Project. Uh, how much of an issue was it at the time? Did, did that in any way potentially, you know, scuttle these plans to bring him into to the Manhattan Project? Or how would it have been viewed in, in during the wartime period? Yeah, well, that was the decision of General Leslie Groves, who was in charge of the entire Manhattan Project, um, and he was an officer in the Army Corps of Engineers. He built the Pentagon building, um, and Groves really went against the opinions of the security agents who, under him, the military intelligence agents, who were very concerned about Oppenheimer's political associations and did not want him to be part of the project. But Groves was, you know, very insightful and foresighted in seeing Oppenheimer's importance, his particularly his leadership abilities, his abilities to inspire people, and he insisted um, that Oppenheimer had to be part of the project. And he appointed Oppenheimer as director of the central part of the project, which was the Los Alamos Laboratory. That was the place where the atomic bomb was both designed and built. What had he been working on prior to 1942 on the scientific side that made him such an obvious choice then to be a part of this? Well, you know, say he was an obvious choice. Um, I think it was really um, very insightful of Groves to see that potential. You know, even his scientific colleagues thought that he was not an obvious choice because he'd never really organized anything on a larger scale than a research seminar. Mm -hmm. um, and he was a theorist. He was not an experimentalist. Um, and so to appoint him to be in charge of a project building this um, sophisticated piece of technology that had never been built before was certainly not obvious. Someone like Ernest Lawrence, who was who had built the world's first particle accelerator at UC Berkeley, the cyclotron, would have been the more obvious choice. Oppenheimer was a theoretical physicist, and he, he was important in really bringing the new science of quantum mechanics which had been developed in Europe, particularly in Germany and in Copenhagen by Niels Bohr, to the United States. Oppenheimer studied in Germany um, and brought that new way of thinking about the physical world, about the atom and, and subatomic particles to the United States and built up a school of theoretical physics at UC Berkeley. And one thing that did indicate his leadership abilities was his charismatic ability to inspire his students as a teacher. And I know the movie it explores this this dimension of you know the the angst and the the moral dilemma of what it was they were doing, um, but it's really interesting and it's something you explore in the book, right? Where it's not just science uh, for you know the sake of discovery, it's science as an arm of the state, or it's science in in pursuit of a war effort. Right. It's it's world changing kind of, of science. Uh, so how how did he grapple? And I guess you know the others involved by extension, but but grapple with that. Well, that was a difficult change, particularly for physicists who had not um, been involved with government or really with industry to any large extent prior to World War II. Chemists were much more used to these kinds of relationships, but for physicists especially, it was 
the Manhattan Project fundamentally changed physics. It fundamentally changed the um, way in which science was done, the organization of science. It, in the U.S., it meant that government uh, now funded science on a large scale, and much of that funding after the war was military funding through the Department of Defense. Um, it also meant that science was organized on a much larger scale around big technology. It was big science. And this was a um, wrenching change, particularly for physicists. And a key issue of contention in the Manhattan Project was the military's insistence, General Groves' insistence on secrecy and secrecy not only between the project and the outside world, but within the project through compartmentalization, which basically means knowledge on a need-to-know basis only. And many of the scientists argued that they couldn't work that way, that science depended on sharing knowledge. And yeah. Oppenheimer put this case to General Groves that that was unworkable and Groves made the concession that within Los Alamos and only within Los Alamos compartmentalization would be lifted so that knowledge could be shared between different sections of the laboratory and there was a colloquium that was regularly held where all at least the senior um, members of the laboratory the PhDs could um, gather and talk about that was going on in metallurgy, in nuclear physics, in the theory and the mathematics of implosion. And this could be discussed by all the scientists. And Oppenheimer presided over these colloquia and was said to have a great ability to understand and synthesize all of the science that was going on in the laboratory. When science becomes part of the state or part of the, the war effort, now there's, there's a time pressure, time constraints that aren't necessarily there when it comes to scientific research. And given the fact that the Germans had a, you know, what was it, a three or four year head start, you know, that only added to, to that pressure. That's absolutely right. And the, so the bomb worked actually with the idea that the Germans were producing a bomb and that, um, it would be a terrible thing if the Nazis would. Um, but the time pressure actually even increased after the defeat of Germany in May 1945, when the target of the atomic bomb switched from Germany to now it being used against Japan. Right, and of course, um, seeing it used. Yes, go ahead. And for Los Alamos, the plutonium and uranium was arriving from these large sites at Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and Hanford, Washington. The pressure was on Los Alamos not to delay the project, to have the design of the bomb, the apparatus of the bomb, so that that plutonium could just be plugged in and the bomb would be ready. And the plutonium device, because it was so uncertain, had to be tested before it was used. And that test took place on July 16th, 1945. And what was in the background of that was the Potsdam Conference, where the leaders of the Allied countries were meeting. And President Truman wanted to know whether the bomb would work while he was meeting with Stalin um, to discuss the end of the war and the post-war balance of power. It was very important for Truman to know that he had the bomb in pocket. Well, of course, it did work. Trinity was the code name of that device that was detonated on, on that day. And then, of course, you know, the bombs were, were used against Japan. So after all of that and realizing what had been created, what had been unleashed, the, the arms race that was to come, how do we describe then Oppenheimer's post-war perspective uh, on all of this? Was it, was it regret? Was it something different? Well, 
Well, it's hard to say if he regretted his work during the war and the bombing of Hiroshima. He had terrible, uh, I would say, moral trauma from that. But he always insisted that he, if if he was called to do that again, he, he, he would, that he felt that it was necessary. Nevertheless, Oppenheimer believed that atomic weapons rendered war obsolete and that we had to bring an end of war and perhaps the very existence of the atomic bomb could be a spur to end all war in general. And he drafted something called the Atkinson Lilienthal Report, named after the Secretary of State Dean Atkinson and the first chair of the Atomic Energy Commission, David Lilienthal. And this was a report that was a, a very radical conception of arms control that called for all nuclear energy activities, including basic science, from everything from basic science up to weapons, to be under the control of the United Nations, which was, of course, a new organization. And the idea was that, that really, if that took place, then nuclear energy could be changed from something being oriented to weapons to being oriented to um, civilian purposes. And that perhaps this could mean the the end of war as a way of resolving human problems. Now, that proposal was actually put to the Soviet Union by the U.S. Um, in the United Nations, but negotiations failed. The Soviets felt that it was really a ploy to continue to allow the U.S. to have a monopoly of nuclear weapons. They didn't think the Americans were sincere. Um, they rejected the proposal. Um, you can understand why they didn't think the Americans were sincere, given that Operation Crossroads was taking place at the same time as the negotiations, when the U.S. Navy was carrying out the Pacific off the coast of Bikini. Didn't really suggest that the U.S. tensions. Um, so I'm uh, who was very. It, it didn't work. Yeah. Well, Charles, we need to leave it there, but uh, really do appreciate your time, your insight on all of this. Uh, as mentioned, uh, your book on the subject is called Oppenheimer, The Tragic Intellect. Thanks again for joining us here today. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. All the best, Charles. Take care. There you go. That's uh, Charles Thorpe. Uh, he's a professor, associate professor of the Department of Sociology, University of California, San Diego, and his book, Oppenheimer, The Tragic Intellect. Uh, we got to take a break. Plenty still to get to on this Thursday afternoon. Back with more right after this. So as you know, or I'm sure you know, yesterday the uh, prime minister announced a pretty big cabinet shuffle. Now, this had been telegraphed for a few days, a lot of leaks. I don't think anyone was surprised by the news yesterday. Um, but it was pretty big as far as cabinet shovels go. Two-thirds uh, of departments now have a new minister. Seven ministers were dropped altogether, including some prominent faces, uh, Marco Mendicino, David Lametti. There are seven rookies uh, now at the cabinet table. Uh, others did stay put. Uh, you know, and I think they're ministers that maybe do have the trust of the prime minister, sort of in that inner circle. Christia Freeland, for sure. Uh, Stephen Gilbeau, even Melanie Jolie. But otherwise, a lot of change. So a couple of questions arise. I mean, number one is, well, why? What was the point of all of this? And number two, how much does it matter? Like, how much, say, how much independence, how much change can individual ministers really affect? Does it really matter who's in charge of a, a, a given department if they've already kind of got their marching orders anyway? So the faces might change, but does any of the approach change? Does any policy change? Is this a reset in terms of a shuffling of chairs? Or does it represent any kind of a more significant reset in terms of government priorities or direction? Well, joining us for some thoughts on all of these questions, I'm very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Andrew Coyne, columnist at The Globe and Mail, theglobeandmail.com, where you can find his latest on yesterday's cabinet shuffle. Andrew, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Good to be with you, Rob. 
Well, first of all, the question of why, I mean, I think to a lot of outside observers, it's, you know, the things are not going well. This is an attempt to kind of turn the page or, or refresh things. But what's the prime minister thinking, do you think? Well, I think to say they're not going well, maybe understating it, as we're seeing with recent polls, we've now had two polls in two days from reputable outfits, uh, Abacus and, and uh, Leger, both showing the Conservatives ahead by nine or ten points. And when you get into the the regional numbers, it's even worse. Yeah. Uh, so, or, or the demographic breakdown. So it's it's really bad for them, and probably their internal numbers have been showing that. So they needed to shake things up, I think, uh, pretty severely. Whether this will do it is another question. What's well, the thing? And I think a lot of the challenges relate to to areas that are unaffected by the cabinet change, like economic issues. I mean, that that abacus poll on, you know, who do you trust more on the economy for people who identified that as, as a top issue? I mean, it was like 47 for the conservatives, 16 for the liberals. I mean, that's pretty bleak. And I don't know that the cabinet shuffle really, uh, you know, addresses any of those kinds of concerns, does it? Well, that's right. I mean, so, that, yes, way behind among people who think the economy is the top issue. And when people are asked what the top issues are, there are things like the economy, the in, uh, like inflation, like health care, like housing. And on all of these, they're scoring extremely poorly. So um, they've, they've definitely driven themselves into a cul-de-sac. Um, what you would take from this, uh, this uh, shuffle, however, as sweeping as it was, is that this was mostly, a, this mostly interpreted as being a question, at least on the, on the shuffle itself, you would say this is mostly a matter of messaging uh, that we need better communicators now in fairness that's more or less what cabinet is for these days and has been for many years uh, um, you know in other countries when there are cabinet shuffles people read the tea leaves and they say ah so and so has been moved into into that portfolio and that signifies something because we know what that person stands for and we know what wing of the party that person is from and we can see the prime minister trying to maneuver between those uh, uh, factions within the party, trying to move the party or the government in a different direction. So cabinet shuffles in other countries with more functioning parliamentary systems have some genuine legitimate meaning to them. In ours, it's mostly who comes from which demographic group, which which person from which region, uh, uh, maybe some suggestion of, okay, he's a good communicator or she's a good administrator, but, but not really valued for their their views, and for the most part, not really valued for their experience, but more for their their representation purposes. So part of this is just the decline of cabinet generally, uh, and part of it, I suspect, unless we unless we see differently, unless we see a throne speech and a complete reboot of the policy approaches the government is taking, then we'll have to assume that they see this as mostly a matter of of symbolism and messaging, and they just need to do a better uh, way of communicating because because for the most part. Uh, um, there's no indication of any change in policy here. No, and we wouldn't expect it, right? I mean, people don't look at some of these changes and see, as you point out in your piece, okay, we got this new minister in health or this new minister in heritage, so what different approach are they going to bring? They're really not. I mean, I mean, they're really not empowered to do that anyway, are they? Yeah, I mean, very occasionally you'll get somebody like a, like a Stephen Guibault with a whole history of advocacy and activism on the environment. So when you put him into the environment... Uh, you know, you can have some safe assumption that, 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 that he's going to bring some of that passion and that experience to the job or he wouldn't take it. Mm-hmm. So that's an unusual situation. Uh, um, but, but, you know, if you, if you put somebody else besides Christopher Freeland in at finance, is there anybody in, in that party you would say, well, that must mean something that we haven't seen from Christopher Freeland? Or would you say it's another finance minister who's basically doing what the finance department and the prime minister's office between them want them to do. So ministers are basically caught between the demands of the prime minister's office and what they can, you know, push and shove their bureaucracies to do. And between those two forces, there's not a lot that individual ministers really matter. You know, and I mean, there there's some ministers who clearly have, have screwed up or stumbled. You know, Marco Mendicino stands out, so maybe not a surprise that he's been dropped. Um, you know, maybe there are those who have leadership ambitions that the prime minister is wary of. But it, there seem to be those that he trusts, those that do have some sway. Christia Freeland's at the top of that list, and maybe there's a couple of others. What is it about those ministers, uh, you know, that some are more powerful than others? 
In some cases, it's because they have a personal history with the Prime Minister. I mean, uh, uh, Dominic Blanc is a very capable fellow and has earned his position, but he's also a lifelong friend of the Prime Minister. Uh, Mark Miller, similarly, is a very effective communicator, but also a longtime friend of the Prime Minister. And there's a few others like that. But, yes, staying out of trouble would be the main criterion. Uh, uh, ministers that land themselves on the front page because they've you know, misspoken or they haven't been able to answer questions or they look like a deer in the headlights, uh, they're the ones who are going to get themselves uh, uh, moved either to a lesser portfolio or out of, out of cabinet altogether. So I think that was the that and the polling numbers were the proximate causes of this of this shuffle was they had a few ministers. You mentioned Margot Mendicino, uh, Ahmed Hussain at Housing, Omar Al-Gabra at Transport, uh, Pablo Rodriguez at Heritage, where they were they become liabilities to the government. Uh, th- th- they were having a hard time answering uh, opposition criticism, media criticism on some pretty significant and and and, uh, and difficult files. And at some point, they frankly they had to go. And so that was, I think, job one in the, in the shuffle. There was they also want to take the opportunity then to move along some people who seem to be doing rather better at representing their the government and, and advocating. So. I mentioned Mark Miller, uh, 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 Sean Fraser moving into housing, uh, Mark Holland moving into health, Pascal Saint-Ange at Heritage. So you take out the people who are liabilities, you promote people who you think will be assets. Um, and then I think it's also the, 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 the movement of Anita Anand and Jean-Yves Duclos into Treasury Board and procurement, mm-hmm. uh, respectively, I think was intended to both in substance and reality to shore up the kind of basic competence of the government, which has been, uh, to say the least, not their strong point. When you've got things like, you know, massive overspends or, or money that was budgeted but not spent or just functional things like the passports and that kind of thing, I think they they, they really, there's a sense perhaps that they needed to get some more capable hands in the kind of engine room of the government, if you will. Well, and, and yeah, maybe there is a need for that. And, and Anita Anand, I think, is demonstrated to be a capable minister. But, you know, there's the other consequence of the disruption now at national defense at a time when it's a lot of important issues that, that Anita Anand has been dealing with, both internally and externally. Now we're throwing a new minister in there. I don't know what kind of a message that sends. Well, it's a good point. It's an odd time to be changing horses at defense at such a critical moment, not only with the war in Ukraine, but with these demands that we're facing from NATO to pull up our socks and become more responsible uh, ally and, you know, spend more, but spend more effectively, even more important uh, on defense. Uh, and so puzzling time. And then to give the job to Bill Blair, who I don't think anybody would, would say was a change agent, uh, um, uh, is, is hard to figure. Uh, it's one of the one of the puzzles of this uh, shuffle. The other major one was why exactly David Lametti was dropped altogether from cabinet. I mean, uh, he said and done some things that I would disagree with, but I, I, I wouldn't have said there anything he'd done publicly that you would say was so offside or so damaging to the government that he'd have to be dropped altogether, particularly when other people were left in cabinet. So there's a story to be told there that hasn't come out yet, but will be very interesting to find out. Of course, the prime minister is still the prime minister, and I mean, there's there's all kinds of questions about his own personal future, his own intentions, whether he intends to contest the next election, whether he intends that to be any time soon. But in terms of whether this this cabinet shuffle is going to give us any clues of that or represent any kind of significant change, it's yeah, I mean, the jury's still out on that, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's 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 they've they've left in place some of the most significant ministers for good or ill. Uh, 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 Christopher Freeland at, at Finance, uh, uh, Francois Philippe Champagne at Industry, uh, I mentioned Stephen Guibault, uh, um, Jonathan Wilkinson. So you would look at that and you would say, okay, that's continuity. That's They, they basically think the major engines, the major uh, platform planks of, uh, 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 are in place, the major people anyway that represent those. Um, and, uh, and we don't need to make much change, even as you say at Defense. Um, that's hard to figure because I think there's a growing consensus that uh, that growth has really ground to a halt in this country. Uh, you know, the economy oh, yeah. is always, uh, you know, number one or number two is an issue. Um, but it's there's a longer term crisis here because, you know, we, we can't afford not to grow when we've got the kinds of fiscal and economic demands coming down the pike already here in the form of a, an aging population and the cost that that's going to impose. Um, so if we've got 
you know, the cost of looking after all those elderly people uh, and fewer, relatively fewer people of working age, uh, then we need to get productivity, much faster productivity growth out of the out of that workforce, which means much higher rates of investment than we've had. And it's only laterally that we've even seen the government talk about growth as opposed to redistribution. So it's a curious, um, it's a curious for all the, the talk about the sweeping shuffle and the you know biggest number of changes. It's it's also curiously stand pat. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, as mentioned, your latest, much more uh, in today's Globe and Mail, theglobeandmail.com. Andrew, thanks as always. Appreciate this. My pleasure, Rob. All the best. That is Andrew Coyne, columnist of the Globe and Mail. You can find his latest, uh, the Globe Today, uh, on this cabinet shuffle. And ultimately, for all the talk, as he says, of how big it is, just ultimately in practice, how meaningless it kind of is. <laughs> Hey, welcome back. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on a Thursday afternoon. Our number 403-974-8255. The debate around water fluoridation has been uh, raging in Calgary for, well, over 60 years. And, And maybe it's a debate that will never really officially end. But just as it seemed as though maybe we were closing the book on the uh, debate for now, a call to reopen it. Now, look, you know, the the debate, even plebiscites, you know, the history goes back many decades, as mentioned. Within the last 25 years, so 1998 and then 2021, we've had two plebiscites, both in favor of water fluoridation. Now, times, though, council has gone against that. 2011, fluoridation was removed. 2021, the vote was to put it back. Following that vote uh, in November of 2021, council voted 13 to 2 uh, to basically make that decision. Now, since then, though, a couple of things have happened. Uh, The cost of restoring water fluoridation has now more than doubled. And the uh, timeline has been pushed back. It looks as though it won't be until sometime next year uh, before fluoride is officially added back into Calgary's water supply. But nonetheless, that's what Calgarians voted for. So is that the final word? Well, our next guest says, well, maybe not. Maybe it's time to once again reopen that debate. Now, Ward 10 City Councilor Andre Chabot was one of the two votes against fluoridation in November of 2021 and has called for the debate to once again be reopened. So joining us to talk more about it is the uh, aforementioned City Councilor for Ward 10, Andre Chabot. Andre, good to have you with us. You're welcome to the program. Happy to be here. Thanks. So when you mean uh, reopened, what, what are you calling for specifically, first of all? Well, I mean, at the end of the day, for me, um, and of course, I was on council at the time when it was removed, and and at that time, we had submissions from numerous different experts on both sides of of the debate, and and on the basis of from a moral perspective, it, if it can negatively impact even one person on something that's a necessity of life, from a moral perspective, I thought it wasn't fair to mass medicate the entire population on something that is a necessity of life. Um, and that was my my main basis for you know, supporting the, the removal, because there are other methods, and we also incorporated alternatives to providing um, fluoride uh, supplements to low-income families as part of an ongoing operating supplement, which ultimately is not a municipal responsibility. I know everyone says, Ah, uh, you know what? You, I don't care whose responsibility is. Do what's right for for the children. I don't disagree that we should. The problem is, is that the more we weigh into on things that are provincial and or federal responsibilities, the greater the expectation is, is that we will deliver on those things, and we don't have the financial resources to do so. And I'm just that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's so many other things: um, dental fees. Um, behavioral patterns, uh, uh, supplements, um, topical applications versus ingestion. Uh, I mean, there's been a number of things uh, that have, were debated, including why are we fluoridating uh, water to water our lawns uh, and or to wash right. our Right. Again, I mean, you know, issues. none of these are new issues. I understand where, where you're coming from here. Uh, again, my question, though, what, what is it you're calling for right now? I'm saying if the cost is almost three times what it was originally uh, assessed at being, and not to mention the fact that there's going to be roughly a $1 million per year operating cost, 
would that money not be better spent uh, providing supplements through Alex and or Cups or Burns Fund and and maybe lobbying the provincial government to provide subsidies for 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 uh, lower dental fees or or even subsidized uh, dental fees for low income families, um, other methods that that don't require us to put water uh, fluoride in water that has no purpose. Well, I, I think it does, and I mean, I, I don't want to necessarily get into a debate around the merits of fluoridation. I, I think a lot of this also speaks to uh, kind of a democratic process here. So we had, uh, the, you know, fluoridation approved in a plebiscite in 1998. Council, uh, you know, about 13 years later, went against that. So now again, we have uh, Calgarians expressing through the democratic process that should be water fluoridation. What kind of message do you think it sends to once again have city council potentially say, no, we're going to go in a different direction. I mean, what's the point of having these plebiscites if council is just going to say, yeah, we don't think so? I think when we're talking about a plebiscite on something that is a very simple up, a yes or no kind of a question, um, then plebiscites are, are, are valuable. But when we're talking about a very complex um, issue such as fluoridating water, I don't think trying to mass uh, educate the public to make a, an educated decision uh, through a plebiscite is the right way. I think. Um, so it was think, wrong to have a plebiscite. I agree. I think I think it was wrong to have a plebiscite specifically on fluoride because ultimately it comes down to who has the, the greatest financial means of of promoting their agenda, and it was clear as to who had the greater financial means of promoting a specific uh, uh, outcome. And that was the pro-fluoride side. Would it be wrong for me to, to suggest that had the vote gone the other way, that you would have held that up as, as a mandate for, for your position? I, um, I did my due diligence back when we originally um, decided to remove it. And I took a whole bunch of, num- of factors into consideration, including that there is value to fluoride, of course, over a longer period of time primarily from a topical application perspective, but there are there is some value in providing supplements primarily for uh, low-income families that may not have the financial means to have regular dental care. But Europe, as an example, has, has introduced alternative measures, i.e. adding fluoride to milk, which then becomes a choice whether or not you want to take it or and, and or salt, fluoridated salt. Um, and again, it's an option on whether or not you want to apply it or, or give it to your children. The fact that you don't have a choice is, is what I take issue with. Right. And, and I'm not suggesting you need to change your opinion because a plebiscite went a certain way. I mean, you know, your views are your views, and I understand that. But again, the, the whole process here, to, to go back to the previous point, I, I think is, is your you know, trying to convince your fellow counselors to go a certain direction. If that plebiscite had gone no... I, I do think you would have held that up as something that, that city council should should listen to. And since it went another way, you're sort of suggesting that it, it doesn't or shouldn't matter. No. In fact, Rob, what I would have likely said had it gone the other way is uh, in light of the fact that the, the plebiscite has suggested that we not add it to the water, I think because we have so many new members of council that were not privy to the discussion that occurred back when it was originally taken out, that we should reinitiate another public engagement to hear from all these different experts on both sides of the equation for all new members of council to become informed in making that decision at the end of the day right, but we've done we are, all that haven't we we have but not to the not with this council and we're talking about nine new members of council here uh, that that were influenced based on what was promoted through the electoral process not not a deep dive into the technical merits and and the the scientific um, arguments on both sides of the equation here. Anyway, so I, I, again, at the end of the day, plebiscite is non-binding. Council can make a decision one way or another. Um, there are uh, other ways of doing things that are binding, but a plebiscite is not. And so ultimately, it's not council is not bound by by a plebiscite. And that's I well. I mean, what, what is council bound by? What what ultimately would be the final word on this? It's. I can't even remember the name for it, but it's not a plebiscite. It's, um, uh, shoot, I, I can't remember the name of, of uh, uh, taking a vote from the public that is binding, but a plebiscite is non-binding. 
Right. But again, I mean, you, you know, you said you don't think that a plebiscite should be held regardless of whether it is binding or not. I just wonder what, what would finally end this debate? I don't think anything will end this debate, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, there is there is value in fluoride, um, even through ingestion, albeit that topical is the preferred method. Uh, the question is, is should everyone be subjected to it from my perspective? That's my main uh, concern about this, is that that I don't think all every person should be subjected okay, to Okay, right, and, and that's fair, and you, you've made that point. So you, yeah. you've suggested a couple of different ways council could go. I mean, one would be just to, to vote against water fluoridation, just end the process right here. You've also suggested now maybe some kind of a new consultation process. Like, are, are you prepared now? Are you going to be putting something specific to council, or where, where does this all go then from here? I mean, at this point, I'm still waiting to hear back from administration whether or not it is something that can be revisited or whether or not the the variance in the in the uh, capital requirements is something that can be um, moved forward with without council's uh, uh, approval. They haven't responded to that. Typically, anything that's over a certain dollar amount has to be approved by council. Um, ultimately, um, you know what, I, I'd like to push back on the provincial government on this. We're talking about dental health. Healthcare is is clearly a provincial responsibility. So at the very least, we should have them help to subsidize the additional costs or the full cost of implementing this in, in our water system. It was a 13 to 2 vote in November of 2021. So that, that's, that's quite a consensus as far as city council goes. I mean, do, do you feel like this is a real uphill battle? I mean, any indication that any of those um, who, who voted in favor of restoring fluoridation have any interest at all in in a reconsideration? Um, I don't know that it would require reconsideration. I, I think the reconsideration would be whether or not we add more money to it. That's I don't think the reconsideration would be a problem because I think council, based on what you just said, would be in support of reconsidering adding more money to to actually um, you know continue on with, in this process. The problem is a reconsideration motion then opens it up completely again. It's not just opening up the funding, you're opening up the decision to add fluoride on the basis of it's going to cost us much money. So you reconsider, well then everything's on the table again. Okay, well we'll see where it all goes from here. Andre Chabot, appreciate making some time for us here this afternoon. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All the best. There you go. That's uh, Ward 10 City Councilor Andre Chabot. So look, I mean, he's pretty clearly uh, against water fluoridation, and that's fine. I mean, people are. Right. It was, what, about just over 60% yes in the plebiscite. So, you know, that suggests that almost 40% of Calgarians voted no, or at least those who voted. And, uh, you know, may share some of the, the same positions on this as Andre Chabot. Look, I mean, the, the debate is is decades old, and many of these same points have been raised over and over again. I get some of the, the concerns or maybe how we could be more targeted in providing dental health. I think the benefits of water fluoridation are, are quite apparent. So, I mean, that, that's my own view on that. But I think there's also the whole political side of this. I mean, ultimately, either Calgarians are having a say directly or indirectly through elected representatives. I mean, if this is really just about public health, then maybe we should just put it to a panel of experts to decide. But nobody's proposing that. So how else are we to make this decision? Calgarians voted. They said yes. City council voted. They said yes. So it seems to me like a decision's been made. Not everybody agrees with it. Not everybody has to agree with that. But do we keep going through this over and over again? I don't know. But look, it's, it's a fair point here to, to note that, yes, look, the cost has risen. There was no number on the ballot, though. You know, are you in favor of water fluoridation, but here's how much it's going to cost? So I don't know, at what point does that maybe become relevant in rethinking all of this? Big picture, I mean, there's a supply and demand imbalance in Canada when it comes to housing, and that's led to a surge in housing prices. And it's a challenge that, that is going to persist because Canada has some pretty ambitious immigration targets. In fact, over the last 12 months, Canada's population surged by 1.2 million. That's immigration, that's also temporary foreign workers, international students, and of course, they all need places to live. 
So the more a population grows, the more demand there's going to be for housing and also social services. Are we able to keep up with all of that? It's absolutely the case that uh, in order to maintain our productivity and our tax base, that to support an aging population, we are going to be reliant on immigration. But what about the current pace we're on? How sustainable is it? This new report from TD Economics finds that, you know, for now, immigration is helping create a bit of a rosy picture when it comes to economic growth in Canada, but it's creating some challenges at the same time. And that if we don't address those, that we could continue to face, uh, you know, an affordability crisis uh, in the years ahead. Uh, joining us to talk more about these issues is uh, one of the authors uh, of the report, uh, Beata Karansky, is chief economist at TD, and joins us uh, on the line here this afternoon. Uh, Beata, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much. I mean, it's interesting because on the surface, it looks like everything's rosy in a way. I mean, you know, we've got some pretty large increases in Canada's population, but we're seeing that reflected in positive GDP growth. It, it does create a perception that, uh, you know, it's leading to prosperity. Yeah, it, it, on the aggregate, um, people equal consumption, and therefore that's why you see stronger spending numbers and GDP growth, just because you have uh, large numbers of the population in terms of growth. But this is why many economists more recently have started to redesign the metrics that they're putting the emphasis on, and, and more and more you're hearing people refer to per capita numbers, so GDP per capita, consumption per capita. And the reason they're doing that is not to redefine the metrics in terms of how we're looking at it today versus historically. It's really to say how how much better are you really off or how much strength are we really seeing when you take into the account that you have this big population base um, in terms of growth that we didn't have in prior years. And when you put the metrics on the per capita basis, all of a sudden you see that, in fact, GDP per capita is flat to down. Consumption is showing similar patterns um, in, the, in recent quarters. And so it does give a sense of, you know, why is it that people say, um, you know, I'm feeling strained or I, I don't feel that well off. And yet, oh, we had consumption growth of almost 6% in the first quarter. These don't reconcile, but they really do, because we just have to think about how we're measuring the data. Right. So why do we see such a difference when we look at different ways of, of measuring the data? What explains we're, that? Really, it's just the fact that uh, the population growth has been so strong every time, you know, and that population growth is coming via uh, immigrants and non-permanent residents, so people coming into the country. Now, when you come into the country, you need a lot of stuff. <laughs> you need a house. You need furnishings. You probably need a winter coat if you're not from yeah. a, a cold country. Um, and so you create a new new demand source, in effect, right? And so that's what's goosing up the consumption and GDP figures um, because you just have more people equaling to more uh, goods and products that are in demand. And that's why when you take it on a per capita basis, you break down how much spending is each person doing. It's actually not showing that people are spending a lot. In fact, they're, they're considerably less than what we see in the U.S. Um, so there is cautiousness happening and there is more conservative behavior happening on spending in Canada. But it doesn't look like that when you just look at the whole because you have all these um, basically new contributors to the economy. Right. Uh, and I mean, you know, this this does help fill job vacancies in the short term and mm -hmm. longer term. There's a need to, as mentioned, you know, sustain our tax base, sustain our productivity. But, you know, mm -hmm. this kind of population growth does come with some challenges. So where, where does it create some pressure then? Yeah, and the analysis we did is basically if uh, we know that many parts of Canada already have um, somewhat severe housing shortages, especially in the space of affordable housing. And these generally tend to fall into city spaces. And in particular, when you look at Vancouver, or Ontario, Montreal is getting stretched. Um, we already see there's an affordability issue and a shortage of certain types of supply, especially in single family homes as opposed to condominiums. Um, so now when you add in over a million people in the span of one year, if that were to continue for two more years, Everybody needs a place to live, and whether you're renting or owning, you still need a place to live, and it puts pressure on that segment of the market. So we find that we would take the shortfall in housing construction in Canada 
would effectively double to about a half million homes that should be constructed, that won't be able to be constructed to accommodate the population. That's a pretty big shortfall. Right now, in our base case world, we're saying we're already seeing a shortfall of about 200,000 homes that will not be constructed that are needed in the population. And that would rise to uh, about, you know, 500. Uh, So that's a significant shift. And it would basically say the affordability issues that we're all talking about, that is not going to be getting better. That actually would be worsening. And that's even if we think about a number of cities which are, you know, rezoning and accelerating permits and doing all sorts of efforts to accelerate the construction cycle, even when we take that into account, we still end up in a deficit position for housing because we are all starting on the back foot. We're already starting in a deficit position, and it takes years for supply to catch up, but the demand is happening right now. So that's one of the biggest pressures that we're seeing come through as part of this big influx in the population. And then what's the impact on the monetary policy side? Because I think there's some concern then raising this report about how this might affect what's known as the the neutral interest rate or the the Goldilocks uh, interest rate. What's the connection there? Yeah, basically that's based, you know, where you have the interest rate setting that allows the economy to grow at a potential pace, but doesn't actually um, stoke inflationary pressures outside of the Bank of Canada's targeted 2%. So that's why it's like the Goldilocks, that perfect rate. Um, and in, in our analysis, if the population growth continues at the current pace, it would probably mean that the neutral rate, that that resting point, would be about 50 basis points higher. So instead of, you know, in a perfect world, the interest rate would settle down back at two and a quarter percent, which seems terrific today relative to where it yeah. is. Um, we would say, no, really, if this population growth continues at this pace, it's more likely you're going to be closer to 275, 3% as the resting place, which creates its own issues because, one, it makes capital more expensive, borrowing, and so that can actually impact the pace of building homes. And then for the buyer, that tells you that the base level on mortgage rates would also be higher than the counterfactual world, right? So, you know, you get less affordability, so it has that double hit that comes out of it as a result. The flip side is like we can't forget that we do have aging demographics and we do have a labor market that's in need of workers. And so that's the other side of the argument is how we're backfilling that side of the economy's needs. Right. And part of this report is, is to look at what could be a more balanced approach here and maybe look at other ways uh, of addressing some of those challenges. Immigration is mm-hmm. obviously going to be a part of it, but it's, you know, it can't be our, our only response to, to mm-hmm. these challenges. Yeah, it's a little bit concerning when it's like seen as like the be-all and end-all strategy because there are a lot of levers we can pull on simultaneously. And I think one of the lessons that came out of the pandemic is that it actually accelerated and altered policies related to labor market, what economists would call labor market friction, right? That um, an example would be, and it was a great example, it was a big eye-opener for me, is when the Alberta government said, we're going to you know, facilitate the registration process for nurses with international credentials. And in doing that, there was a massive influx of registered nurses, like more than they would have seen in four-year prior combined that happened. And these are all people who were already living in the country. And so they didn't require new housing, new source of demand, and put pressure on the social system because they are already here. But they were not being employed optimally in terms of what they were skilled and able to do. And so that's a really good example that we created our own barriers and a very, like a stroke of a pen and some, putting some thought behind it, created a new source of labor demand to fill a you know very critical part that was needed at the time and continues to be needed. And we're seeing examples of this across the country. Ontario did it with engineering credentials. So other provinces are starting to respond. British Columbia did it as well for inter- for internationally trained healthcare workers. But, you know, our point is, is we're, we're seeing it how effective and how quick it can change the dial in some sectors. So why not think about this in all sectors? So a good example is in the trade sector. The construction sector has been one area that has been lamenting labor shortages for years and years. And we know that to get trade credentials, it's somewhere between a three and five year period. So, you know, has anybody revisited that in Ontario? If you want to become an electrician, you require 9,000 hours plus 
coursework. That's five years. Um, when has that been revisited? How much of that made sense maybe five, ten years ago? But with all the advances we have and new tools, even in terms of online learning, that we can improve results and shorten up time periods and reduce people dropping out of the labor market because it's taking them five years at a reduced income to get these credentials. So these are things we're saying, like, we've got the international policy. We're really good at it. We're a role model globally, but we also have to take a hard look internally on where we can reduce labor market barriers for people already in the country. Very interesting. Uh, much more at economics.td.com. Beata, thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate this. Oh, my pleasure. All the best. Uh, there you go. That's uh, Beata Caronzi, uh, chief economist at TD Economics, one of the uh, authors of this report. Uh, looking at the potential implication of continuing down this path, right, where – you know, some of these big picture numbers are, are kind of skewing or overshadowing some other things going on here. And that uh, it's going to be difficult to keep up with this pace of population growth, and it's going to create some challenges. The most obvious being when it comes to, to the housing market, where we're starting from a deficit, as she said, we're already behind, and it's just going to exacerbate moving forward here. I don't think there's any way we can you know, increase the housing supply sufficiently and that quickly to keep up with this kind of population growth each year. So some things we're going to have to address. I mean, we are going to have to rely on immigration. Canada's population is going to have to increase. Frankly, we're a large country geographically. We have room for a lot of people. But that doesn't mean that, you know, we can just, uh, you know, set any kind of target and just assume everything's going to work out fine. I mean, there needs to be a reasonable pace to it. Uh, I don't think it's unreasonable to say that. Certainly affordability remains a big challenge. The prime minister says that's going to remain a key focus of his government. Housing remains a big challenge. Uh, And there's responsibility here for all three levels of government. That certainly the federal government uh, has a big say over demand for housing in terms of population growth with some pretty ambitious uh, immigration targets that we were talking about in the last hour. Uh, so I think there's there's a big question, like, what can we do to address housing affordability, to add to supply, you know, both federally, provincially, and municipally? Well, some interesting new research today out of the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary on what communities can do to address this. And it's sort of an apples-to-apples comparison of two similar communities but where there's a significant difference in housing prices and what we can learn from that. Of course, both Calgary and Edmonton have what we refer to as bedroom communities, uh, communities uh, on the outskirts uh, of the city that are close enough where people live and do commute. You know, Edmonton, of course, has Sherwood Park and Stony Plain and St. Albert and Leduc. Calgary has Airdrie and Okotoks and Cochrane. So this study looks at two of those specifically, Cochrane and Okotoks. Very close proximity to Calgary, a significant uh, proportion uh, of residents in each community do commute into Calgary. Similar size communities, similar demographics, similar median income. Big difference between Okotoks and Cochrane, housing prices. Why would one community be more affordable than the other, given all of those other similarities? So that's what this uh, new report out of the School of Public Policy attempts to drill down on to better understand that. Uh, so joining us uh, to talk more about it with the author of this report, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Robert Falconer, uh, who's a researcher with the University of Calgary School of Public Policy, also a doctoral fellow with the London School of Economics. Robert, great to have you with us here. Welcome back to the program. Great to be back, Rob. So let's talk about you know zeroing in on these two communities, which, as I say, this gives us a real apples-to-apples kind of comparison on housing prices, doesn't it? It does. Social scientists really like these types of case studies. You know, we can't do a, a, a randomized controlled trial like they do in the pharmaceutical industry where we sprinkle housing on one community but not the other. Right. So we have to look for, for communities that are very similar in certain ways. And uh, it turns out that Cochrane and Okotoks are, are, are pretty similar, but the difference is a, a huge uh, difference in the cost of housing and, and associated policies. So let's talk about those housing price differences. So what, how significant are those differences? Over the past decade, uh, the, the cost of housing in Cochrane has been pretty consistently, on average, about $40,000 cheaper uh, when you adjust for inflation. 
even if, you know, if actually, interestingly enough, just before I came on, just went on the uh, Calgary Real Estate Board statistics on Concord and Calgary, and, and there still is, if you, even for the latest month, still quite a large difference between the average cost of housing in Concord versus Calgary. And, and that's persisted for quite a long time now. Right. And is it generally the case then that both of these and other bedroom communities would tend to be cheaper than, you know, in this case, Calgary or, you know, similar situation to Edmonton or other big cities in Canada? Those bedroom communities have a bit of an affordability advantage. Exactly. And, you know, that that is the case to a certain extent. One thing that, that is interesting, though, is that you would expect housing prices between Cochrane and Okotoks to be to be largely similar, um, given that again they're they're demographically very similar. They're they're pretty equally distance distance from the downtown core in Calgary. Uh, you might, and even in some ways, actually expect housing prices to be higher in Cochrane. It's it's grown a lot faster over the past several years, and uh, you know some people who might prefer easier access to the mountains might like its foothills and, and uh, road to Canmore. Um, but that's not the case. Again, Cochrane has been very consistently about $40,000 cheaper. Right. So as you say, it's it's not for lack of demand. People do want to live there. Cochrane has grown. So how do we explain the the difference in housing prices? What we found when we went, dug into the data was a, a significant difference at, uh, in the rate at which Cochrane issues housing building permits. For every five permits Cochrane gives out, uh, Okotoks only gives out two permits. So to put it in other terms, Cochrane issues two and a half times the number of permits and builds about, about the same amount of housing, about two and a half to three times the amount of housing than, than Okotoks does. Now, there, there are reasons for this. Um, when you look at other contexts, sometimes it can be nimbyism, not-in-my-backyard attitude towards that. And comments have been made in the, in the Okotoks Town Council in that regard. But in fairness to Okotoks, they also have struggled for several years now uh, to to get uh, more licensing for water and more access to water in the area. Nonetheless, Okotoks has made a decision because of that to limit the number of housing permits they, they give out. So whether it's NIMBYism or water constraints or something else, the end result is the same, which is a much lower supply of housing in Okotoks compared to Cochrane. Right, so there's demand in both cities or both towns, but uh, Cochrane's been better able to meet that demand. Exactly. The supply has been able to, to reach the, the, the demand levels in, in Cochrane to a greater extent. As well, this is not just about the number of houses. When we think of houses, we think of that white picket fence, the, the single detached house where there's space between them, nobody's butting up against you, and you have a lawn. Um, but Cochrane also has a greater variety of housing. So they also actually have a greater proportion of new housing that is multifamily. What we mean by that is townhouses, row houses. At the extreme end, we might think of an apartment or condos. Uh, but, but Cochrane, about 46% of its newest builds are in that multifamily category. And then that's compared to about only 16% in Okotoks. So not only does Cochrane issue a greater number of building permits, but there's also a greater variety. The Cochraneites have a bit more options, and uh, some of them will be at the cheaper end, making it more accessible for, for families. So let's say, is this a simple model then that, that other communities could follow, and not just communities of this size, but even you know bigger municipalities like Calgary or Edmonton? Absolutely. If we start with Okotoks, I think one of the biggest things I need to resolve there is the, the water access issue. And I know that there is yeah. uh, conversations ongoing there with the province about funding for that, um, and certainly a, a thirst to expand the supply of housing. But this absolutely has lessons for Calgary, too. Calgary doesn't have the same constraints as Okotoks does. It, in, in Calgary, this is largely a, a choice of policymakers and the choice of city administration about the number of permits they wish to extend and, and the variety of permits they wish to extend. Uh, you know, Calgary is one of the fastest growing cities in Canada. It's actually the fastest growing city over a million people. Uh, we have plenty of people moving here internationally, inter- interprovincially from uh, other provinces. And, and Cal- Calgarians and, and city council um, have, a, have a choice really before them about which model they want to follow. Well, and, and this demand isn't going away. And I know you focus a lot of your research on immigration and, and refugee issues. I mean, you know, we've got some ambitious targets in this country, and, and a lot of those newcomers are going to be settling here in Alberta or in the Calgary area. So this this challenge is, isn't going away over the next few years. Far from it, right? No, and, and I think, to be honest, it's, it's a challenge with a really good opportunity. I'll, I'll use an yeah. example here. One, one thing that uh, I really like about the, the idea of having more affordable housing is it unlocks disposable income to be, that can be used in other places in the economy. You know, when you buy a, a really, really expensive house, that money gets locked up in the house equity until you, the time you sell it. 
more money in more people's pockets can help them, you know, can spend within the community, help support local business, of course. And we kind of also see this in, in Cochrane well with the, the new Garmin facility, for example, where companies like Garmin and others, when they're looking around where they want to put a new headquarters or a new building, they look to see whether or not their employees could possibly afford the town. Um, and, and I think there's a strong case that, we, yes, this is a challenge. We have hundreds of thousands of individuals likely to move here in the next several years. Uh, but it's a challenge that comes with an opportunity that if we if we make certain sometimes hard politically decisions um, in Calgary, I think we, we have the potential to uh, make housing a bit more affordable for families in the area. Very interesting. Well, much more policyschool.ca, including this uh, latest report. Robert, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate the insight on this. Thanks for having me, Rob. All the best. Take care. Uh, there you go. That's uh, Robert Faulkner, author of this report. He's a uh, researcher with the University of Calgary School of Public Policy. So some really interesting finding. You two very similar communities in terms of size, proximity to Calgary, demographics, but about a $40,000 difference in average housing prices. That's a pretty big number. And so what can other communities learn from that? So there's a real advantage, not just in terms of meeting, you know, the demand that's going to be there, but just being an attractive community or being a vibrant community. You know, like Robert says, I mean, if people are able to to more easily afford a home, you know, maybe that has other economic benefits uh, within the community and local business, et cetera. So a lot of reasons why we should want to strive for that. But, you know, there, there are other issues that communities run into when it comes to opening things up on a more wide, wider basis, you know, nimbyism, that sort of thing. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.